Lord, hear our prayers. And we say amen together. Amen. Amen. First Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. In the Greek language, the normal word order is verb and then subject and then the rest of the sentence. But in this sentence, Paul reverses the order and puts the subject, you, first. For emphasis, you, church in Corinth, this great metropolis urban megacenter, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. Now, you, Waterstone, are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. The mission of the church is to be the body of Christ. In other words, you embody the ministry of Jesus Christ. Just as he was here with us in flesh and blood and in a body, he's now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but his ministry continues in flesh and blood. You. You are the continuation of the ministry Jesus described this way in Luke chapter four. You are to comfort the brokenhearted love. You are to open the eyes of the blind. Truth. You are to proclaim freedom to the captives, justice. And you are to share the good news of Jesus with the poor and the despairing, gospel. That is the work, the mission of the church. And you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. But sometimes churches get off mission. Corinth certainly was. You see, they got wrapped up in this idea that church was mainly about the worship gatherings like Sunday mornings, and they got really wrapped up with this idea that really the only people who do ministry or have spiritual gifts are those who like preach or sing or are up front and, you know, very, very public kind of ministry. Corinth was especially enamored with the gift of tongues, which, by the way, we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So they were just uh, fighting with themselves. There were those who were like fighting for their microphone, and the services were chaos and selfish, and everyone maneuvering to, to you know, have their own gift on display. Or there were those who just backed off and said, you know, I'm not a public speaker, and I can't carry a tune, and where do I belong? And there was this inferiority going on in the church. And so they were divided and they were distracted from the mission. And so Paul in chapter 12, Nick began it last week and we'll finish it this week. He writes to the church and say, first of all, shape up, <laughs> get it together. This is what spiritual gifts mean. 
And the whole teaching is about what spiritual gifts are in the church and how they operate. Last week, Nick from Paul's writing hit on very, three very important things for the church. First, all spiritual gifts come from God. And so every spiritual gifts matters. And there isn't this hierarchy between those who like have public gifts and those who serve behind the scenes. We are all gifted from the same source and therefore all the gifts are vital. And necessary. And more, not only are, are all the gifts from the Spirit, but every believer has a gift. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a spiritual gift. Something, a time, talent, ability that God's wired you and given you that you can contribute so that the church can be the embodied presence of Jesus in the world. You have a gift. Every believer. And then lastly, all of these gifts are to be working together so that we can all at Waterstone Community Church be the embodied presence of Jesus to a watching world. So today we pick up, Paul has made those three premises and now he's going to give an illustration. It's one of the great illustrations in the New Testament when he begins to talk about the church as the, uh, as the human body is an example of how the church should be working. Let's pick up in verse 12 of chapter 12 uh, with the verse verses. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many parts." So Paul first wants us to understand that every gift matters. There's many parts that are contributed to the mission of the church. Many parts. Parts is parts. Thought about your body parts lately? I keep a file on the human body. There's been no quote that I've read that has topped this one. Think about the many parts here. The average human heart pumps over 1,000 gallons a day. Thank you, heart. Thank you. A day. Over 55 million gallons in a lifetime. There is enough to fill 13 super tankers. It never sleeps, beating 2.5 billion times in a lifetime. The lungs contain a thousand miles of capillaries. The process of exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide is so complicated that it is more difficult to exchange O2 for CO2 than for a man shot out of a cannon to carve the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin as he passes by. <laughs> DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 meters of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. A nucleus is six microns long. This is like putting 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. And it isn't simply stuffed in, it is folded in. If folded one way, the cell becomes a skin cell. If another way, a liver cell, and so forth. To write out the information in one cell would take 300 volumes, each volume 500 pages thick. The human body contains enough DNA that if it were stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. Turn to your neighbor and say, you look marvelous. Okay. 
that's incredible, right? That's just amazing. But Paul's point is that as miraculous as each body part is, each body part only does its miraculous when it's part of the larger body. Each of those body parts is a miracle, but it's only working if it's working in a suit of miracles. So how does the many become one? How do all the body parts find their place working together in the body of Christ? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We pick up in verse 13. Paul says, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Paul says in two ways, he says, first we're baptized in spirit, and then he says we all drink from the spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that takes all of these body parts, you and I, and forms us into one body. How does he do it? The Spirit does it. How does the Spirit do it? This, this phrase, baptized in spirit, it's actually used six times in the book of Acts to describe when people were, were baptized in the spirit. Jesus was always the one doing the baptism. So at the moment of conversion, every Christian has been baptized by Jesus in spirit. Just like in physical baptism, you're baptized in water. In uh, the conversion moment, you are baptized in spirit. And the spirit begins to live in you and you, uh, everything in your life changes. You are immersed into a new way of life. Every Christian, understand that. It's in the past tense, baptized. It happens at the point of conversion to every Christian. So I say to every Christ follower here, you are baptized, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean, to be immersed in a new way of life? It means a lot. It means, first of all, that your identity changes. When you say Jesus is Lord and you become a follower, your whole identity changes. You become a child of God. That changes everything about you. Changes the way you interpret life, you interpret experiences, changes the way that you invest your life. You are a child of God. You have unlimited, approachable access to the Father. You have a new heavenly Father. I love the way Tim Keller described it once. He says, when you think about a king, there's only one or two people who have unlimited access to the king. In other words, one or two people who can inter- wake the king out of sleep at three o'clock in the morning and ask for a drink of water. Do you know who this, those people are? The king's kids. You are the king's kids. That's your identity. That changes everything about you. That infuses your life with hope and meaning and significance and your whole identity is new. It also means you have a new presence in your life. You begin to understand that even though you may be by yourself in a room, you've never been alone. Never. The Holy Spirit is with you as a follower of Christ in a way that's so intimate. You are never alone. It means you have a new purpose in life. It means that everything about your life is now kind of driven towards this idea of being the embodied presence of Jesus in the world. And man, you wake up in the morning and you begin to think about that, that Jesus wants me to do his ministry today. That'll get you out of bed in the morning. 
That's purpose and significance, meaning. Everything about your life. Oh, one more thing. When you are immersed into the new way of life, when the spirit makes you part of Christ's body, this thing here changes from a book to a voice. It's not just like a a book that you're reading it. It doesn't mean anything to you. It's almost as if dad is talking to you in this book. And when he says do, he means do help yourself. And when he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. This is a voice your dad talking to you. Everything changes about your life when you are baptized in spirit, when you say Jesus is Lord. But it's more than that. It's not only that we are in him, immersed in a new life, but it's also he's in us. That drink, just when you take a drink of water, you know it goes inside you and becomes part of you. The Holy Spirit, we drink from the spirit, he becomes part of our inside. What does that mean? That means the Holy Spirit is always working to cultivate fruit in your life and have good things come out. Things like Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. And he's always putting you into relationships and situations that pull those more deeply out of your life. And most of the time that really hurts, but it's the spirit working in you to grow fruit. He changes everything on your, on your inside. It's extreme home makeover for him. <laughs> he also is not only working on your heart and soul and those deep attitudes and core values, he's also working in your head. He, he, he gives you the mind of Christ. What does that mean? Let me just take one tangent off that. He begins to, to kind of tease your mind with this idea of eternity. In other words, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit begins to plant this word eternity in the way you think, you begin to realize that I have a destiny ahead of me. I'm gonna live somewhere else in the presence of God with all, all of you in a billion million years and more. When you begin to wrestle with your mind with that idea of eternity, for instance, it changes the way you spend your money. If you know that your primary investment is going to be in eternity, that really wrenches your checkbook now as to where you invest your money. Even Woody Allen got this when he said, if we are immortal, you have definitely overpaid for your carpet. The spirit begins to jack your life up with your money. Because if it's true you're gonna live there a lot longer than you're gonna live here, then you want to invest currency for there, here. Let me, you're giving your money away as fast as you can because the Spirit's changed your mind about where your true treasure lies. He changes your mind about how you invest your time. If I'm truly destined for eternity, then why am I spending so much time watching that box? Why? If that's where my true home is. He starts messing with your suffering. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter and counselor, begins to really impress on us, especially when we're suffering, uh, when we're lonely, when we've gone through the hardest thing in our life, the Spirit begins to talk to us and say, look, I know it's hard. I'm with you after all. But listen, this is not the end. This one bad thing that's happened to you, this loss, this dream that you've lost, (laughs) 
it's not the last word on your life. It does not define you. See, the Spirit, when we're baptized in Him, we're all things new. We have a whole new life working even from the inside and coming out. And that really equips us. That gives us this idea that we are part of something massive and huge. The embodied presence of Jesus Christ showing up in the world on Monday morning. That's who we are. It's the Spirit gifting us and bringing us all together for that mission. It's interesting in verse 12. Paul sees it this way. Look, he says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. This is amazing because you would expect him to say, so it is with the church because he's talking about the church. So it is with church. But he says, no, so it is with Christ. In other words, Paul sees that we are such a part of, of his body, the Spirit's made us one body, that we are now the literal, physical body of Jesus at work in this world. We are continuing his ministry in flesh and blood. That's an amazing, profound thought to think about. You and I, we are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. I love the way that St. Teresa captured this in her prayer. In fact, I'd like you to pray it with me just so that we can just you know, linger on this for a moment. Would you say it out loud with me? Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks. Compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Amen. Amen. So Paul's premise, many parts, but all parts form one body to accomplish the mission of Jesus in this world. He moves on from there, verses uh, 15 to 20, to talk now about two implications of uh, us being the body of Christ. Here's the first one. Uh, I would describe it this way. God loves diversity. He loves every gift and wants every gift involved. Look how he says it. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? In the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. You see, what was happening in Corinth was everyone was so enamored with the gift of tongues, that the eye, that the, the whole, it was absurd the way the church was behaving and acting. What does it look like when a church elevates one gift to, to say, oh, that's what it means to be spiritual, that? You know what it looks like? Minion community church. <laughs> that's what it looks like to say that there's only one main gift and everything else, you know, is secondary. Corinth, no. Sometimes I think we end up as Minion Community Church for two reasons. One, we think that most or all of what a church does happens on Sundays in these walls. 
That could not be farther from the way the body works. I mean, it's true. This is a very important time. Of course, we, we always want people here. We might even argue that this is kind of the engine that drives everything. I mean, we come here, we lift up Messiah, we uh, share a common vision, we shake each other's hands and encourage one another. We basically get fueled up to go back into, into the world this next week and be the embodied presence of Jesus in the world. This is important. We could even say, right, this is the engine that drives the car. But let me ask you this. How far does a car get with a good engine and no wheels? How far does a car get with a good engine and no lug nuts? You, you get what we're saying here. This is just a part of what the church is. It is so much bigger than that. And each of us has a gift to help the ministry of Waterstone, the ministry of the wider church to be Jesus on Monday. You see, this is important. On this time, we lift up Messiah, but you know where Messiah's heart's set on is Monday. And having us go back out into our jobs and into our families and into our places of uh, eating and drinking and uh, influence our places and have us be Jesus in those places. That's the point of this. I think we get confused in what church really is, that the purpose of church is to get us out there. Secondly, I think we get confused on what a spiritual gift is. So let me just quickly, with one slide, go after that again. You say, Larry, you know, I don't belong here. What, you know, I can't be up front. I can't do anything. What are you saying that I have a spiritual gift? Every Christian has a gift. Spiritual gift is simply this. What are you good at? What are you good at? And it may be that you're good at something that is your job. And if that's your job and Jesus wants you working at your job the best you can for the common good and maybe bringing Jesus into conversations now and then, that's your spiritual gift. What are you good at? Your work, something here, a talent you can share, whatever it is, that's where it starts. How's God wired you? Second, what's your passion? What like wakes you up at night? What really gets your blood boiling? What really makes you mad in terms of justice and injustice? Consider that, and that's probably God prompting you towards a spiritual gift. And then lastly, what's the church need? I mean, we need you to show up at your job on, Sunday mor on Monday morning, ready to roll. We, we need you helping out the church. You know, some of you might be here and you're maybe new to the faith or new to this church thing. You say, well, where can I even plug into Waterstone? Do you know what I always tell people? Start with the kids. We always, I mean, it takes a hundred and some volunteers every Sunday to do what we do with children. But it's more than that. Do you know when Jesus was teaching, when he was with us, when he would say, you know what the kingdom of God is like, audience? You know what he would do? He'd lift up his knee and set a kid on it. The kingdom of God is like a child. And he'd say, this is what a kingdom, uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, like a child. So I think it's great if you're trying to find your place at Waterstone, trying to get plugged in to something the church is doing, start by bouncing a baby on your knee. From there, you'll gravitate. Others will speak words of encouragement to you and direction. You'll get excited about other things. If you don't know where to start, start with kids and move on from there. That is what a spiritual gifts is, a time, talent, ability that God has given you so that you can help the church be the embodied presence of Christ in the world. So how does it look? Well, uh, quick, quick story. Uh, uh, we have a guy here, Doug Barkema, 
part of, member of our church. He is a, a lawyer at this great company called Ardent Mills, one of the largest flour mill milling companies in the country. And I had lunch with him last week. He gave me a tour of the building. Down, it's right downtown, like at 19th and Glenarm or something like that. And um, we were walking through, and the first thing you notice, he's got like three, three floors. Each floor is a wide open space. There's no walls. All the desks are like next to each other. There's no bare, you know, it would drive me a little crazy because everyone's business would be my business, but it was just amazing to see it all at work. And even the CEO, the CFO, the COO, and Doug, who's the chief legal counsel and, you know, HBO, what all these big, um, fancy, powerful people, even their offices are out in the open, except theirs, they have a little cube thing. So there's a bit of privacy for the big cheese. Here's what's interesting. Doug was telling me that even his office, chief legal counsel, if he's not in his office, his office is always available for anyone else who needs to have a private conversation. One of the values of the company is service and they model that by saying everyone's on the same level here. But if, and if you need my office to have a conversation, if I'm not in it, you use it. It's your office too. I thought, wow, that, that's a value statement. That's pretty good. It goes further. They even enforce this such that the CEO, the CFO, all those O's and Doug have to, when they leave their office, clean their desk. They can't leave anything on their desk because someone might come in and use the office. I thought, wow. Everyone does that, even the CEO. Yeah, Doug kind of does it too, except for one thing. Doug, when he leaves his office, packs everything up, he leaves this little book lying just under his monitor. And it looks like a, like a journal. It has like a colorful color. I said, Doug, what's that? He slid it over to me, opened it up. It's a Bible. I thought that was amazing because I looked at it, I thought it was this personal journal and I could just see some of the employees saying, oh, what's Doug thinking about? Oh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. You know? <laughs> Doug told me that leaving his Bible, the simple act of leaving his Bible on his clean desk has led to conversations on average about every other week with an employee. Doug has the spiritual gift of evangelism telling others about Jesus. He's not Billy Graham. He's not on the 16th Street Mall screaming his lungs out. He leaves a Bible on a clean desk. Go figure. He's thinking about evangelism all the time. We need that. He's, he's part of Waterstone living out the mission on a clean desk. That's the first thing is that God loves the diversity and every gift needs to be engaged for the body to be fully working. But if you look at verses uh, 21 through 26, the, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. So if the, if first Paul was saying, we can't say that he doesn't need us, but now he's saying, we can't say to anyone else, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Scholars think the idea weaker there is these parts like ears and eyes that need extra protection. They're indispensable. And then the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with honor, verse 23. And less honorable is probably those parts of the body that are like our intestines and liver. When's the last time you thought about your liver? You know, they're overlooked, they're neglected. 
Paul says we treat them with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, those are our sexual organs, are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Presentable parts are like our hair and our skin, and we think, you know, that's what really makes a person look good. Paul's saying, no, we lift up the parts that no one else is thinking about. Verse 24, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He's teaching this Corinth, which has been ripped apart by selfishness and fighting over which gift matters most. Paul's saying, look, in the kingdom, it's not the power gifts that make a church strong. It's those who are weak that make a church strong. Can I say that again? It is the weak in a church that make it strong. For years I've been convicted on this. I believe that God brings to Waterstone Community Church and Foothills Bible Church and West Poles Community Church, he brings to specific churches specific gifts like those who are mentally ill, those who are chronically sick and needy, those, if I could, those who have lug nut personalities, those who just need extra care and attention. He brings those specifically to churches to test them to see how strong they are. When we love the weak, we are strong. And it's the weak that make a church strong. This is captured for me years ago when I first began ministry in a story that I've not been able to overcome. And it shaped me and thus it shaped you and I thought it should be shared with you. It's from Walter Wangren who teaches at Valparaiso University. His book is called The Ragman. This story is called The Making of a Minister. We need each other and especially the weak. Arthur lived in a shotgun house, so-called because it was three rooms in a dead straight line, built narrowly on a half a city lot. More properly, Arthur lived in the front room of his house, or rather, to speak the cold, disturbing truth, Arthur lived in a rotting stuffed chair in that room from which he seldom stirred the last week of his life, last year of his life. Nor during that year did anyone mourn his absence from church and worship. I think most folks were grateful that he had turned reclusive, for the man had a walk and a manner like a toad, a high-backed slouch and a burping contempt for fellow parishioners. Arthur's mind, though mostly uneducated, was excellent. He had written poetry in his day, both serious and sly, but now he used his words to insult Christians in their pews. Neither time nor circumstance protected the people, but their dress and their holiness caught on the hooks of his observations, and pain could spread across their countenance in the middle of an Easter service. While Arthur sat lumpish beside them, triumphant. No, none felt moved to visit the man when he became housebound except me. I was the pastor, so sweetly young and dutiful. It was my job. And Arthur phoned me to remind me that it was my job. 
But to visit Arthur was grimly sacrificial. After several months of chair sitting, both Arthur and his room were filthy. I do not exaggerate. Roaches flowed from my step like puddles stomped in, and they dropped casually from the walls. I stood very still. The TV flickered constantly. There were newspapers strewn all over the floor. There lay a damp film on every solid object in the room from which arose a close, moldy odor as though it were alive and sweating. But the dampness was a blessing because Arthur smoked. He had a bottom lip like a shelf. And upon that shelf, he placed lit cigarettes and then he did not remove them again until they had burned quite down, at which moment he blew them towards the television set. Burning, they hit the newspapers on the floor. But it is impossible to ignite a fine, moist mildew. Blessedly, they went out. Then the old man would sharpen the sacrifice of my visit motioning toward a foul and oily sofa, winking as though he knew what mortal damage such a compost could do to my linens and my dignity. He said in hostly tones, have a seat, why don't you, reverend? From the beginning, I did not like to visit Arthur Forte, nor did he make my job easier. He did not wish a quick psalm, a professional prayer, devotions, rather, he wanted acutely to dispute a young clergyman's faith. Seventy years a churchgoer, the man narrowed his eye at me and debated the goodness of God. With incontrovertible proofs, he delivered shattering damnations of hospitals at which he had worked and doctors whom he had closely watched. Twenty dollars a strolling visit when they come to a patient's room and for what? Two minutes time? For what? No particular news to the patient? Worthless, he said, hollowing the word at the center. I'll never go to a hospital. That cockroach is more truthful of what he's about. And then, somehow, the failure of doctors, he wove into his intense argument against the goodness of God, and he slammed me with facts, and I was a fumbling, lubberly sort to be defending the Almighty. When I left him, I was empty in my soul, close to tears, testy, my own faith, stale, flat, unprofitable. I did not like to visit Arthur. Then came the days of his incontinence, both physical and religious. The man was, by late summer, failing. He did not remove himself from the chair to let me in. I entered an unlocked door, nor even to pass urine, which entered a chair and possibly see me. The August heat was unbearable and dangerous to one in his condition. Therefore, I argued that Arthur go to the hospital despite his criticisms of the place. But Arthur had a better idea. Oh, he took off all his clothes. Naked, Arthur greeted me. Naked, finally, the old man asked my prayers and the devout performance of private worship, and we prayed. Naked, too, he demanded communion. Oh, these were not the conditions that I had imagined in seminary. It is an embarrassing thing to put bread into the mouth of a naked man. My body, my blood, and Arthur's belly and his groin. He'd raised the level of my sacrifice to anguish, and I was mortified. 
When I came to see him the last week of August, I found Arthur prone on the floor. He'd fallen from his chair during the night, but his legs were too swollen, his arms too weak for climbing in again. I said, this is it, Arthur. You are going to the hospital. He was tired. He didn't argue anymore. He let me call two other members of the congregation, and while they came, I dressed him. He groaned profoundly. He groaned when we carried him to the car. He groaned even during the transfer from the car to the wheelchair. Douglas and Clarence and I had brought him to the ER. But once inside the shiny building, his groaning took new meaning. I'm thirsty, he said. He's thirsty, I said to a nurse. Would you get him a drink of water? No, she said. What? No, uh, he can't not ingest anything until the doctor is contacted. But water? Nothing. Would you contact his doctor then? That will be done by the unit nurse when he's in a room. Arthur slumped in his chair and hurting and said, I'm thirsty. I said, well then, can I, can I wheel him to a, to a room? I'm sorry, no. Please, I'm his pastor. I'll take responsibility for him. In this place, he's our responsibility, not yours. Be patient. An aide will get him up in good time. They did get him to a room, but they took the time to wash him to take away the stink before they brought him water. Please call us doctor, I pleaded. We're about to change shifts. The next nurse will call us doctor, sir. All in good time. So, Arthur, whose smell had triggered much discussion in the halls, finally did not stink. But Arthur was still thirsty. He said two things before I left. He mumbled, bloody but unbowed. Poetry, good Arthur. I praised him with all my might. Even a miraculous wit was better than lethargy, and perhaps he could even insult a nurse or two. But he turned an eye toward me, gazing on this fool for the first time since we entered the hospital. Bloody and bowed. He slept an hour. I sat at bedside, my face in my hands. Then suddenly he started awake and stared about himself. Where am I? Where am I? He called. In the hospital, Arthur, I answered. He groaned horribly. Why am I? In all my ministry, I have wept uncontrollably for the death of only one parishioner. The hospital knew no relative for Arthur Forte. Therefore, at 11 o'clock that same Saturday night, they telephoned me. Then I laid the receiver aside and I cried as though it were my own father dead. My father. Indeed, it was my father. Anger, failure, the want of a simple glass of water. I sat in the kitchen and wept. In the terrible, terrible doing of ministry is the minister born. And curiously, the best teachers of that nascent minister are sometimes the neediest people, foul to touch, unworthy, ungiving, unlovey, yet haughty in demanding and then miraculously receiving love. These poor forever with us are 
our riches. Arthur, my father, my father, so seeming empty your death, it was not empty at all. There is no monument above your pauper's grave, but here, it is here in me and my ministry. However could I make this, make little of this godly wonder that I love you. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it.